Good morning. Robert Vandeweer recounts in his book, Celtic Parables, a quote from a famous evangelist, disciple-maker, church planter that you might have heard of. He writes, I, Patrick, am the most unlearned and lowest of all the faithful. My father was a deacon and my grandfather a priest. At the age of 16, I was taken captive and shipped to Ireland along with thousands of others. When I arrived in Ireland, I was sent to tend sheep. I used to pray many times each day, and as I prayed, I felt God's love fill my heart and strengthen my faith. I had to stay all night in a hut on the mountain looking after the sheep, and each day I would wake to pray before dawn in all weathers, snow, frost, and rain. I remained as a slave in Ireland for six years. One night, when I was asleep, I heard a voice speaking to me. It told me that a ship was waiting to take me home. I awoke and immediately ran down the mountain and hurried to the coast. I found a ship about to set sail. And although the captain did not want to take me, one of the old sailors smuggled me aboard. I was overjoyed to see my family again. And at first, I thought I should never leave them again. But one night, I had another dream in which a voice spoke to me. That voice implored me to return to Ireland and preach the gospel. When I awoke, I felt as if I were a slave again, but now God was my master. Now, I share that quote for a couple of reasons. One, it sets up the message perfectly, so I like that. Two, we just celebrated St. Patrick's Day. And third, and perhaps most importantly, St. Patrick's Day is a poignant example of what I'm talking about when I say we have a backwards, upside-down culture. Because think about how many people, maybe even most people, celebrate St. Patrick's Day. It typically involves a lot of drinking and not a lot of evangelizing and disciple-making, right? And so when you think about who St. Patrick was and what St. Patrick did, he sparked one of the greatest disciple-making movements in history and evangelized the, the entire island of Ireland. And yet, the way we celebrate him 1,400 years later has almost nothing to do with what his life was given to. And so that sort of sets the table for our Kingdom Culture series that we have just begun last week, and we're looking at how the Kingdom is right side up. The Kingdom is how we, as followers of the King, are intended to live. And so as we talk about Kingdom Culture, we have to understand what is the culture of the Kingdom to which we belong. But you also notice on the logo for the series that culture is upside down and backwards because the culture out there is upside down and backwards. And I think we can all agree in many ways that that is the case. So the question in this series is not just what is the kingdom culture, but how do we put kingdom over culture? How do we make sure that the kingdom and the hallmarks of the kingdom and, and the things that exemplify the kingdom are first in our lives and are over the culture around us. And so we're looking at stories and parables and events of Jesus' life, and we're pairing them with early church teachings on what the kingdom is and how do we live as ambassadors for the king in the culture out there. So last week I got things started, and I talked about how the world lies to us 24-7, 365. I talked about how you've been lied to, right? And the world spends billions of dollars lying to us. 
getting us to value the wrong things, to prioritize the wrong things, to put the American dream or the pressures of the world around us in front of God's dream for our lives. And so this series has that in mind. As Michael Blue puts it in his book, to a large extent, the world has been far more effective at making disciples of it than we have of making disciples for Christ. And you can see that happening in our culture and in other areas around the world. There are places where we see kingdom culture infiltrating and taking over the culture around it. But sadly, we don't see that happening enough in the West, in America, in Europe, in some of these places. And so our goal through this series is to learn how we can live as productive members of the culture around us without assimilating. Remember I talked about how you assimilate, you blend in, you just kind of go with the flow, don't rock the boat, or without completely withdrawing from the culture around us so that we lose our ability to influence it at all. And I talked about how there's sort of a continuum between those two. And and I asked you to ask yourself that question, which one am I more likely to do to just kind of blend in, go with the flow, and lose the ability to influence because I look so much like the culture around me, or withdraw so completely that I lose the ability to influence because I'm not a part of it. We have to find a way through where we can live as ambassadors of the kingdom with the hallmarks of the kingdom culture in our lives and influence the culture around us. And I shared a quote last week, and several people asked me about it and said that, oh, man, I really wish that had been on the screen, Pastor Mark. You were, you were calling out some things that were really important. So the, I have the quote here, and it's from Maxie Dunham in his book, Christian Leadership. And Maxie Dunham was the, the president of Asbury Theological Seminary for about 10 years. And he says this, and this really exemplifies what we're talking about. It says, instead of the church desperately trying to elbow her way up to the tables of power, we can instead turn our attention to becoming by our life and witness an alternative voice to the madness around us. That's for each of us. We can each do that. There is madness around each of us. We each have a circle of influence, a sphere that we can, we can influence for the kingdom And this is where he goes on and kind of highlights several areas and ways that we can do this. Since in Christ we have been reborn into the new reality of the kingdom of God, we can become ambassadors of peace in the midst of a violent world, models of civility and grace in the midst of a competitive society, conveyors of faith and hope in the midst of a cynical culture, and the embodiment of agape love to all peoples in the midst of an adversarial Society. That's a wonderful little to-do list. That's a wonderful little thing to pray. God, help me as I go out today to be these things. If you'd like a copy of that quote, just send me an email, marc at linwoodchurch.org. I'd be happy to send you the full quote, and you can put that somewhere. Uh, I've been praying through it as I've been going through this series, and it would be a wonderful way to bring this to mind on a regular basis. Now, our bottom line last week was that kingdom culture is a Christ-centered culture. Kingdom culture is a Christ-centered culture. It is centered on the person and the work of Jesus Christ and getting that into our lives, that as followers of Christ, we want to live Christ-centered lives. As we talked about a spiritual continuum that you start with sort of exploring Christ and then growing in Christ, becoming close to Christ, and eventually Christ-centered. And the danger is that we get close enough to Christ and we never move on to being Christ-centered. 
But one thing I made really clear is that you don't move across that continuum accidentally. It takes intentionality. It takes intentionality to start exploring Christ. And if you're here today exploring Christ, good for you. We celebrate that, and we want this to be a safe place for you to, celebrate, or to grow closer to Christ and, and grow in your relationship to Christ. Make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And then we grow in Christ, and we become close to Christ. And finally, with enough intentionality, we can become Christ-centered, where his, our relationship with Jesus is the most important thing in our lives, and it guides everything we do. And so one of the things that was important last week is that there is much that we can do. There are things that can help us grow spiritually. And I usually camp out on, on personal spiritual practices, reading your Bible, praying, journaling, these things that we do personally in our one-on-one -on -one relationship with God that can help us grow spiritually. There's no substitute for them. But today I want to focus on something else. I want to focus on service. And it's going to involve a new take on a pretty familiar parable, that we grow when we serve, that spiritual gifts that God has given us empower us to grow. And as we step out of our comfort zone and into our spiritual gifting, we can grow in ways that we never would otherwise. And so the, the new parable or the, the new take on the old parable is the parable of the workers in the vineyard. It's in, in Matthew chapter 20. And if you have one of our blue hardcover Bibles, that's page 1529. If you don't have one of our Bibles, you're joining us online, we'll have this on the screens, but I would encourage you to open up a Bible in front of you if you can. Now, the context for this parable in Matthew chapter 20 is that there's a lengthy teaching that starts in Matthew chapter 18 and goes all the way through the end of Matthew chapter 20. And Matthew divided up his gospel into five discourses. Lengthy teachings from Jesus about the kingdom of God. That was the number one agenda item in Matthew's gospel for Jesus' ministry, was to teach, to announce, and to teach about the kingdom. This is the fourth of those five discourses, and it's a lengthy section of teachings and parables. Now, my ESV study Bible subtitles this section of three chapters as the community of the Messiah revealed. And I love that language, the community of the Messiah revealed. Jesus is teaching the people what the community of the Messiah looks like. Does that sound like kingdom culture to you? He's defining the culture of the kingdom of God. He's defining what the community of the Messiah looks like in this world. And the ESV Study Bible goes on to describe three particular ways. The characteristics of the community of the Messiah, that's what it is. The implications of the community of the Messiah, that's what it means. And the value of the community of the Messiah, that's how it applies. And that triggered something in my mind because I have shared with you many times before this three-pronged approach to inductive Bible study. When we look at a passage of Scripture and we try to understand what it means, how I'm sorry, what it says, understand what it says, what that means, and how it applies. Those three questions that we can ask of any passage of Scripture and invite the Holy Spirit to answer those questions as we study, as we seek to understand, as we look at our study Bibles, as we maybe open up a commentary or, or go to a small group and talk about it with other people and look at their resources, we ask those three questions. What does it say? What does it mean? And how does that apply? I see a real overlap here in what Jesus is trying to do in these three chapters as he reveals the community 
of the Messiah as he describes kingdom culture. So this should have our attention. So let me read this parable to you. I'm going to read it pretty much all the way through. I'll stop just a couple of times to clarify a few things or explain a few things that might not be familiar to us. But for the most part, I'll read it all the way through. And then we'll look at three things that I see in this parable about the community of the Messiah being revealed. So here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. Now, a denarius was basically a day's wage. It was sort of the agreed-upon amount. You might think of like a minimum wage or, or a reasonable wage, maybe above minimum, but, but it was the day's wage at the time. Picking up in verse 3, About the third hour he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and still found others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Now, these hours, there was essentially a 12-hour workday, and it was broadly from about 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So he goes at the beginning of the workday, he goes again three hours in, six hours in, nine hours in, and even at the 11th hour, basically at five o'clock. And each time he finds people looking for work and sends them to work. Now, verse 7, they answer his question, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one's hired us, they answered. And he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and each received a denarius. So they got a denarius, a full day's wage for one hour. All right? That's significant. So when those who came, those who came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. They're saying basically, we did 12 times as much work as those people who came. And they came in the evening when it was starting to cool off. We worked right through the middle of the day, right? They've got a legitimate gripe, don't you think? But he answered one of them, Friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave to you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. So there's a couple of things that I want us to see, three things that I want us to see or understand, and one thing that I want us to do in response to this. The first thing that I want us to see or understand, and this was a newer insight for me in regards to this parable, is this. Everyone was given work to do. Do you see that? Everyone in this parable was given work to do. Nobody was exempt. And we see this in verses 1 through 7 in the return to the marketplace to bring more people. And each time he had work for them to do. Now, there was a footnote in my study Bible that told me, and, and this makes sense, and I've seen this in other areas, that grapes were one of ancient Israel's most important crops. And, and so they had 
juice that they could drink from those, and then there was also the fermented products, the wine that were available from that. But Israel, often in the Old Testament and by extension in the New Testament, is often referred to as the vine or the vineyard of God. And that vineyard represents the activity of the kingdom in this world. I can't make this stuff up. It's right there in the study Bible that the vineyard of God, the people of God, represent the activity of God in this world. That's our kingdom culture theme. And it's followed, ironically, in Matthew chapter 21, in the fifth discourse, with two more vineyard parables. That, that he tells more parables that involve a vineyard, that involve a landowner. And so this is representative of the activity of the kingdom of God in this world. And here's our bottom line today, that kingdom culture is a serving culture. Everybody had work to do. The work of God in this world involves all of the people of God. And so we see all of these people were working, were serving, were laboring. Some came early and served longer. Others came later and didn't serve for as long. But everybody had work to do. And we serve the king by serving others. We serve the king today when we serve others, when we serve within our church, when we serve within our community, when we go on a foreign mission trip like Keith and Sandra are on right now or like uh, Greg Desitel and Mark Hafey and, and came back from a mission trip. We're going to hear from them and the things that God did in them. We've got a mission team going to uh, Zambia in July. Like We serve the king when we serve his church and our community and the world when we serve our Jerusalem, our Judea, our Samaria, and the utter ends of the earth. We labor in his vineyard. We help to do the activity of the kingdom in this world. And here's an interesting take on that. Those who came first, those who started early, got to do more for the kingdom of God. They got to bear more fruit. They got to do more work for the king. They also were spared the anxiety of not being hired. You see, if you were a day laborer and you didn't get hired for the day, you didn't get the denarius for the day, you didn't come home with bread. You didn't come home with the things that your family needed because you hadn't received the payment that you earned from the day. So they were spared that anxiety of, are we going to have food to eat tonight? And they got to bear more fruit. Those who start early get to bear more fruit than those who are started late. Now, the second thing that I see in this parable of the community of the Messiah being revealed is that everyone got what they needed. That's the second thing that we see here. Everyone got what they needed. In verses 8 through 10, as the people are being paid, they're all paid a denarius because they all needed a denarius. Even the one that came at 5 o'clock and only worked an hour still needed a denarius. Everyone needed a full day's wage, and everyone had agreed to a full day's wage, even those who started first. And by extension, we all need salvation. We all desperately need salvation. We cannot earn it on our own. We cannot accomplish it or achieve it by any means other than Jesus Christ, like putting our faith in Him. That's the gospel. There's no amount of good that I can do apart from Christ to atone for all of my sin. I need Jesus. Just like they needed a day's wage. God gives us what we need. He gave them what they need. He gives me salvation when I put my faith and trust in Jesus. When I stop trying to atone for it myself and now I begin to work 
in his vineyard do the work of the kingdom in the world, not to atone for my sins, not to earn my salvation, but because I have received salvation. And others need to. And it's a joy to work. It's a joy to serve. It's a joy to serve in my church. It's a joy to serve in my community. And it's reasonable to assume that those who came last expected to receive less. That's just reasonable to assume. And so imagine their joy when they received more, when they received a full day's wage, when they were trying to do the math in their mind that last hour as they're working. Well, I'm only going to get an eleventh of a denarius. Maybe they'll round up to a tenth. Can I get enough food for everybody to have a bite or two? Imagine their joy when they receive a full denarius for the one hour that they worked. But isn't it interesting how quickly the tables turn from the joy of those who came last receiving the full denarius to the disappointment of those who had agreed to work for a denarius, expecting more, feeling entitled to a little bit more. It's interesting to see how quickly the tables had turned. And before we move on from this point, it just strikes me that in a very real sense, we are all 11th hour laborers. We are all those who came right at the end, who did not bear the burden of the day's work and the heat of the day. Jesus bore the burden for us. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. We are all 11th hour laborers coming at the very end and yet receiving everything we need. God giving us what we need. So in a very real sense, we are all 11th hour laborers. We have all received tremendously more than we deserve. And that leads to the third point. God doesn't owe anyone anything. God doesn't owe anyone anything. He doesn't owe anyone at the end. Once all the, once all the denariuses are paid out, he doesn't owe anyone anything. Now, you might say, well, if I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, then he owes me the imputed righteousness that Scripture promises me. Well, sure, you're right. But Jesus is God, so God did that for you. God doesn't owe any of us anything, even if we came early and worked longer. We've had the joy, the peace and satisfaction of knowing him, of knowing where we will spend eternity. We owe him everything. We owe him everything. And we're called to serve him by serving others. The greatest commandment tells us that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the second that's brought up to equal with it. I talked about this last week. If you missed last week, it would probably be a very good one because I'm going to be referring back to that often throughout this series. This would be a good one to go back and look at. But that's the greatest commandment, that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that we love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, some started that later. Some started that earlier. But nobody quit early. Do you see that? The people that started at 6 a.m., they're not getting the afternoon off, even as the reinforcements come. Now, the work might have gotten a little easier, and they might have gotten a little tired, and here come the fresh legs. But nobody's checking out early. Nobody's punching out early. Nobody's clocking out early. And this highlights to me this idea that the notion of voluntarily retiring from Christian service is completely unbiblical. The notion of voluntarily withdrawing yourself from kingdom service is unbiblical. Now, we may need to change the way that we serve. 
we may need to slow down a little bit and let the new reinforcements come in, but to completely withdraw from kingdom service is completely unbiblical. Paul talks about this. Now, if there was anybody that had earned a retirement from kingdom service, it was Paul. Look at his life. Look at what he endured, the beatings that he endured, the travel that he endured. This was no first-class jetliners. Like, this was ships and shipwrecks and traveling on bad roads into hostile environments and getting beaten and left for dead multiple times, beaten by the Gentiles, beaten by the Jews. Like, he had nobody in his corner much of his life. If anybody had earned a pass for the last season of his life, it was Paul. And look what he says in Acts chapter 20. He says, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now in Philippians 2, one of his earlier letters, in Philippians 2.17, he says, But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering, like to the very end, on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with me. He's saying, like, even if my life is completely spent for the sacrifice and service coming from you, I rejoice in that. And in one of his last letters, which we just looked at in depth in our last series, in 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 7, as he's closing one of his last letters, he says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept my faith. He writes that from prison, where he's going to be martyred for his faith. And he's not done yet. He's still writing to Timothy to encourage him to be strong and to finish his own race. So that's what I want us to understand. That's what I want us to see, to know, to understand from this parable. But here's what I want us to do in response to that. As we think about the community of the Messiah, there's one more thing. And this is what we're to do. We are to serve one another in love. We're to serve one another in love. Our bottom line today is that kingdom culture is a serving culture. And Paul writes extensively about this in Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. So that'll be our New Testament teaching on this, our early church teaching on this. In verse 13 of this passage in Galatians 5, Paul says, You, my brothers, and by extension my sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. If you have received the gift of grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you are called to serve one another in love. You're free from the penalties of sin and death. You're free from the requirements of the law. But don't use your freedom to be lazy. Don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Don't use your freedom in Christ to indulge a sinful lifestyle. Rather, serve one another in love. Serve one another in love. Don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, realize that we're free from the flesh. We're free from the flesh, and we're free to serve, to serve others. Now, he goes on at the end of this passage in verse 16 through 23 to talk about the difference between being led by the flesh versus being led by the Spirit. And to summarize that for you, basically the flesh is always asking, what's in it for me? And the flesh is very self-serving. But the Spirit is always asking, what's in it for God? What's in it for others? And serves others. 
So Paul says, kind of along the same lines in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19, he says, Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. He continues, to the Jew I became like a Jew, to the Greek I became like a Greek, to those under the law I became, you know, he, he's, he fleshes this out, and then he concludes in verse 23, I do all this for the sake of the gospel. It sounds a lot like Acts chapter 20. It sounds a lot like Galatians 5. This was the heartbeat of who Paul is. And let me tell you guys, one of my greatest regrets in life And I don't have a lot, thanks to Jesus, but one of my greatest regrets in life is that I did not take Jesus seriously sooner. I grew up in the church. I knew what I needed to know, but I did not respond in faith to it. Until I was 19 did I begin a relationship with Jesus Christ. And one of my greatest regrets is that period of time that was wasted, that was lost. And even after I came to faith in Christ, there was a period of time where I was growing in Christ like that spiritual continuum where I was learning what it means to get to know him. But I messed around with a lot of things that I didn't need to mess around with. I valued a lot of the things that the world said I needed to value that I didn't need to value. And I lost a lot of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, which is what Paul says the kingdom of God is all about. Because I didn't take Jesus seriously sooner. I didn't. I couldn't sing the song that we just sang, what joy, what joy for those whose hope is in the name of the Lord. I still had my hope in me. I had my hope in what the world thought of me. I had my hope in some career ladder that I was going to climb, even into ministry that followed me. And I thought I needed to do this and do that and have this size church and do all these things so that I would be okay, that I would be enough. And I think about all the righteousness, peace, and joy I lost because I didn't prioritize this sooner. That's one of my greatest regrets. Because I think about what it cost me, and I think about what it cost the world, that I wasn't living for Jesus sooner. And that's why I'm so passionate about getting people into God's Word, helping them to fall in love with Jesus, to really fall in love with Jesus and have a daily relationship that gets them out of the bed in the morning without setting an alarm so that they can go and they can spend time with God, and they can reflect on His Word, and they can bring it into their lives, and they can share that with others. That's my dream. I told my Wednesday morning discipleship group, which started in January and has already grown to eight people, I said, my goal for this group is that in two or three years, every one of you is leading your own group. That's the vision. It's not that we have this wonderful little Bible study of eight people that goes forever, but that all of us have our own groups and we're leading our own groups. And that's the vision for every banding together group, that we would all get so much of God's word in our hearts that we can't help but share it with other people and make more disciples who will make more disciples. I said the 10-year plan is that all of the people that you bring into your groups would have their own groups, and we have to book out the Denny Sanford Premier Center to have a celebration of all the people that are in a discipleship group that started with this group. Wouldn't that be amazing? Absolutely. Is it possible? Absolutely. Is it going to happen without intentionality? No, because the world out there is working overtime against it. And yet, kingdom culture is a serving culture. It's a Christ-centered culture. And Jesus speaks to this. Oh, my goodness. What time is it? Okay. (laughs) Jesus speaks to this when he calls the the disciples together. Just a little bit later in Matthew chapter 20. Just a little bit later in Matthew chapter 20. This is what has taken place. He's predicted his death right after this parable. And then right on the heels of that, James and John's mom comes and says, can James and John be first and second in your kingdom? 
I know, you just, I know you're going to die. But when you die, can they be first and second? And here's what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, he calls them together in verse 25, and he says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. If the king is here to serve, aren't the subjects here to serve? Can I have five more minutes, like five extra minutes? Can we go a little long today? Is that okay? Show of hands, is it okay? All right, that looks like a majority. Verse 14. We're coming back to Galatians chapter 5, okay? Verse 14, this is important. Don't miss this. The entire law, the entire law, like three-fourths of your Bible, the entire law summed up in one command, one sentence, love your neighbor as yourself. This is Paul boiling it all down. He's saying, love your neighbor, agape, love your neighbor, self-sacrificing, surrender your neighbor, empowered by the Holy Spirit as yourself. This is where service moves from the head and the heart to the hands and the feet. Love is a verb. Love is not a feeling. He's not commanding you to feel something about your neighbor. He's commanding you to do something for your neighbor, to love them, to put them first, and to serve God in that way, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. You have a spiritual gift, every single one of you. I can say that with absolute confidence. The person sitting in your seat has at least one spiritual gift, maybe more. And in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, Paul talks about using the spiritual gifts, that you're a part of a body. And when you just check out early and go home, the body suffers. That your spiritual gift is meant for the body, it's not for you. And so we all have to serve. We all have to serve together. We have to serve in the church and we have to serve in the world. You have a spiritual gift and we have an assessment that will help you figure out what that spiritual gift is. We talked about this back this fall in the Holy Fire series, but you still have access to this. There's this QR code on the screen. You can just open your phone, your camera. It'll tell you, do you want to open this page? You can open it. It's safe. You can take a spiritual gifts assessment. You can learn how you are hardwired by God to use your spiritual gift. And then we will help you as a church staff to find a place to use that spiritual gift. You can do that. We can help with that. This is not the same as our spiritual life survey. Okay? I don't want you to get confused because we showed a QR code last week. What's on the screen is for a spiritual gifts assessment that will help you to learn what your spiritual gifts are. The spiritual life survey is separate, and Pastor Zach will talk about that and show a QR code for that in the announcements so that we don't get confused. But this passage from Paul is not over yet. There's one more sentence that I think we need to understand. And verse 15 says, If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. Now, I've always read that verse as biting and devouring sounds very angry and like attacking But it's not just attacking. In fact, the ESV translates destroyed by in the end of that verse with consumed by. And when you look at the original languages, it it is. It's a consumption. And I think that it's just as likely that there can be a peaceful overconsumption as an angry, combative, attacking overconsumption. So as the worship team comes up, 
and prepares to lead us in response. I'm sure all of you have heard of the 80-20 rule. How many of you have heard of the 80-20 rule? The idea that 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. We find this over and over in voluntary organizations. And it basically breaks down to one producer for every four consumers, right? 80, 20, 80 plus 20, one to four. That doesn't sound like kingdom culture. <laughs> kingdom culture is a serving culture. Then imagine with me for just a moment, what if it was 20, 80 instead? What if 80% of the people did the same amount of work as that 20% of the people that are doing it right now? That would be four times as much work, four times as much produce. If there were four producers for every one consumer, and that one consumer is somebody who is physically incapable of serving, or who is still growing in Christ, exploring Christ, they don't know him yet. What if the middle 80% were serving with all they had to make sure that everybody can hear, that nobody misses out? that the work is done. If there was four times as much production and four times as much fruit and four times as much ministry to be done, would that not be a kingdom win? You know, we have people in our congregation that get this. We've got a cancer patient who's been showing up to help Pastor Sandy to prep all of her materials. She can't necessarily serve on a Sunday morning, but she can come during the week in her good hours of the day and serve, and she's finding so much joy in that. We have some people who, who are retired, but they show up multiple times throughout the week in order to serve, to bless their church, to serve. They can't help but serve. And so I say, what if everyone at Linwood served like that? What if everyone who was in that middle, the, the, the far end of that continuum, they, they're growing in Christ, they're close to Christ, they're Christ-centered, if they were serving, serving on a regular basis, and if this is you, thumbs up, good job, way to go. But if you've bought into the lie that you've put in your time and you can check out, or that service is for other people, service is just for those Christ-centered people, then please get in the game. We're not even fielding a full team, and we've got able-bodied people sitting on the sidelines. We have a hard time finding people that will rock babies in our nursery. That breaks my heart. Who does? I would love to rock babies in the nursery. That would bring me great joy. But I'm here. So we need you to be there. We've got to fix this, guys. We've got to fix this. This is kingdom culture. Kingdom culture has to be strong in here so that it can be strong out there. And so what if? What if we all woke tomorrow as the slave of a new master. Just like our opening quote from St. Patrick. What if we all awoke tomorrow as the slave of a new master? What if we all awoke tomorrow as the slave of all, just like our king was, as the servant of all, just like our king was? That would unleash so much righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit in each and every one of our lives that we wouldn't even be the same. We would never be the same. And I believe this world and this community would never be the same. So will you pray with me and respond in faith with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the extra time together. Thank you for your word and your spirit. It really is all we need. We need your word. We need your spirit. We need 
to get your word into our hearts, and we need to follow your spirit into this world. Help us, Lord, to be led by your spirit as we serve one another in love, as we respond in faith, as we take a spiritual gifts assessment or as we sign up and get in the game. Help us, O oh God, to serve you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.